Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring a chapter from Dracula's Daughters, Classic Tales of Vampire Women and Their Thirsts, edited by John Marie Stein. This is a unique anthology of time-tested shudder stories about a unique breed of women who refuse to take death lying down. Though they may all be siblings beneath the skin, and graveyard as well, these vampiric sisters are as different as any eight women could be. One prefers to acquire her nourishment through more scientific means. Another doesn't even drink blood at all. Her approach to draining the life from her victims is somewhat more direct, but we think you'll agree that Luella Miller deserves the appellation vampire every bit as much as any of the rest. Some inhabit ancient European castles with bloodlines that stretch back into history. Others are freshly minted, dwelling in the house right across the street. Some are reached by automobile. Others lie far back in time in the late 1700s. Some join the legions of the undead via the standard methods like suicide, while still others owe their existence to very unusual means indeed. Some even embrace their fate for love. There is one thing these frightful female fiends have in common, however, besides their fangs. Once you've met them, you will never forget them. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Dracula's Daughters. Dracula's Daughters Classic Tales of Vampire Women and Their Thirsts Edited by Jean-Marie Stein Introduction Although the world's most celebrated vampire, Dracula, is male, it is his brides, daughters, and consorts who fascinate us most. Something about female vampires seems the ideal embodiment of everything powerful, cunning, and dark in women. Some people see a Freudian sexual explanation for the pervasive attraction of the male vampire, involving penetration, surrender, incubation of a strange condition within the victim, etc. There seems to be an equally obvious Freudian explanation of our attraction to the female of the vampire species. Unashamed use of physical allure, draining of a vital fluid, leaving their victims worn out and spent, etc. Hence the popularity of the term vamp for a woman who consciously employs her sexuality to get the men she wants. In fact, Bram Stoker's book Dracula, 1897, was in part inspired by the popularity of an earlier tale of a female vampire, Sheridan Le Fanu's 1872 short novel Carmilla. Perhaps there is no greater testament to Carmilla's enduring popularity than the fact that it is the second most filmed vampire story of all time. Appearing first in Roger Vadim's atmospheric and thoughtful Blood and Roses, 1960, with Annette Vadim embodying Carmilla, next, Le Fanu's masterpiece was incarnated as The Vampire Lovers, a 1970 offering from The Hammer House of Horror that starred Ingrid Pitt and emphasized the physicality of the story's lesbian overtones. That film proved such a hit that Hammer brought Carmilla back from the dead in 1971 in Lust for a Vampire and again in 1972 in Twins of Evil, 
with Ute Stensgard and Katya, respectively standing in as the highborn vampire lady. And most recently, in 1990, under its original title, At Last, as Carmilla, featuring Meg Tilly as the last, we hope not, of the Karnsteins. In this anthology of classic horror stories, you will meet eight terrifying women who have haunted readers for years. Each proves the old adage that the female of the species is deadlier than the male, especially when that species is a vampire. Though they may all be sisters beneath the skin, and graveyard as well, these sinister sisters are as different as any eight women could be. Though most imbibe their blood the traditional way, one, the good lady Duquesne, prefers to acquire her nourishment through more scientific means. Another doesn't even drink blood at all. Her approach to draining the life from her victims is somewhat more direct. But we think you'll agree that Luella Miller deserves the appellation vampire every bit as much as any of the rest. Some inhabit ancient European castles with bloodlines that stretch back into history, Claremond, while others, like Mrs. Amsworth, are freshly minted, dwelling in the house right across the street. Some are reached by automobile, the dark castle, and yet others lie far back in time in the late 1700s. Wake not the dead. Some joined the legions of the undead via the standard methods, like suicide. The blood is the life. While still others owe their existence to very unusual means indeed. Placide's wife. Some even embrace their fate for love. Each man kills. There is one thing these frightful female fiends have in common, however, besides their fangs. Once you've met them, you will never forget them. Jean Marie Stein Good Lady Duquesne by Mary Elizabeth Braden Part 1 Bella Ralston had made up her mind that her only chance of earning her bread and helping her mother to an occasional crust was by going out into the great unknown world as a companion to a lady. She was willing to go to any lady rich enough to pay her a salary and so eccentric as to wish for a hired companion. Five shillings told off reluctantly from one of those sovereigns, which was so rare with the mother and daughter, and which melted away so quickly. Five solid shillings had been handed to a smartly dressed lady in an office in Hardbeck Street, London, West, in the hope that this very superior person would find a situation and a salary for Miss Ralston. The superior person glanced at the two half-crowns as they lay on the table where Bella's hand had placed them, to make sure they were neither of them florins, before she wrote a description of Bella's qualifications and requirements in a formidable-looking ledger. Age? she asked curtly. Eighteen last July. Any accomplishments? No, I am not at all accomplished. If I were, I should want to be a governess. A companion seems the lowest stage. We have some highly accomplished ladies on our books as companions, or chaperone companions. Oh, I know, babbled Bella, loquacious in her youthful candor. 
but that is quite a different thing. Mother hasn't been able to afford a piano since I was twelve years old, so I'm afraid I've forgotten how to play. And I've had to help Mother with her needlework, so there hasn't been much time to study. Please don't waste time upon explaining what you can't do. But kindly tell me anything you can do, said the superior person, crushingly, with her pen poised between delicate fingers, waiting to write. Can you read aloud for two or three hours at a stretch? Are you active and handy, an early riser, a good walker, sweet-tempered and obliging? I can say yes to all those questions, except about the sweetness. I think I have a pretty good temper, and I should be anxious to oblige anyone who paid for my services. I should want them to feel that I was really earning my salary. The kind of ladies who come to me would not care for a talkative companion, the person said severely, having finished writing in her book. My connection lies chiefly among the aristocracy, and in that class considerable deference is expected. Oh, of course, said Bella, but it's quite different when I'm talking to you. I want to tell you all about myself once and forever. I am glad it is to be only once, said the person with the edges of her lips. The person was of uncertain age, tightly laced in a black silk gown. She had a powdery complexion and a handsome clump of somebody else's hair on the top of her head. It may be that Bella's girlish freshness and vivacity had an irritating effect upon nerves, weakened by an eight-hour day in that overheated second floor in Hardbeck Street. To Bella, the official apartment, with its Brussels carpets, velvet curtains, and velvet chairs, and French clock ticking loud on the marble chimney-piece, suggested the luxury of a palace, as compared with another second floor in Walworth, where Mrs. Ralston and her daughter had managed to exist for the last six years. Do you think you have anything in your books that would suit me? faltered Bella after a pause. Oh, dear, no. I have nothing in view at present, answered the person, who had swept Bella's half-crowns into a drawer absent-mindedly with the tips of her fingers. You see, you are so very uninformed, so much too young to be a companion to a lady of position. It is a pity you have not enough education for a nursery governess. That would be more in your line. And do you think it will be very long before you can get me a situation? asked Bella doubtfully. I really cannot say. Have you any particular reason for being so impatient? Not a love affair, I hope. A love affair? cried Bella with flaming cheeks. What utter nonsense! I want a situation because Mother is poor, and I hate being a burden to her. I want a salary that I can share with her. There won't be much margin for sharing in the salary you are likely to get at your age, and with your very unformed manners, said the person, who found Bella's peony cheeks, bright eyes, and unbridled vivacity more and more oppressive. Perhaps if you'd be kind enough to give me back the fee, I could take it to an agency where the connection isn't quite so aristocratic, said Bella, who, as she told her mother in her recital of the interview, 
was determined not to be sat upon. You will find no agency that can do more for you than mine, replied the person, whose harpy fingers never relinquished the coin. You will have to wait for your opportunity. Yours is an exceptional case, but I will bear you in mind, and if anything suitable offers, I will write to you. I cannot say more than that. The half-contemptuous bend of the stately head, weighted with borrowed hair, indicated the end of the interview. Bella went back to Walworth, tramped sturdily every inch of the way in the September afternoon, and took off the superior person for the amusement of her mother and the landlady, who lingered in the shabby little sitting room after bringing in the tea tray to applaud Miss Ralston's taking off. Dear, dear, what a mimic she is! said the landlady. You ought to have let her go on the stage, Mum. She might have made her fortune as an actress. Part Two Bella waited and hoped and listened for the postman's knocks, which brought such store of letters for the parlours and the first floor, and so few for that humble second floor, where mother and daughter sat sewing with hand and with wheel and treadle for the greater part of the day. Mrs. Ralston was a lady by birth and education, but it had been her bad fortune to marry a scoundrel. For the last half-dozen years she had been that worst of widows, a wife whose husband had deserted her. Happily, she was courageous, industrious, and a clever needlewoman, and she had been able just to earn a living for herself and her only child by making mantles and cloaks for a West End house. It was not a luxurious living. Cheap lodgings in a shabby street off the Walworth Road, scanty dinners, homely food, well-worn raiment, had been the portion of mother and daughter, but they loved each other so dearly, and nature had made them both so light-hearted that they contrived somehow to be happy. But now this idea of going out into the world as companion to some fine lady had rooted itself into Bella's mind. And although she idolized her mother, and although the parting of mother and daughter must needs tear two loving hearts into shreds, the girl longed for enterprise and change and excitement, as the pages of old longed to be knights and to start for the Holy Land to break a lance with the infidel. She grew tired of racing downstairs every time the postman knocked, only to be told, Nothing for you, miss! by the smudgy-faced drudge who picked up the letters from the passage floor. Nothing for you, miss, grinned the lodging-house drudge, till at last Bella took heart of grace and walked up to Hardbeck Street and asked the superior person how it was that no situation had been found for her. You are too young, said the person, and you want a salary. Of course I do, answered Bella. Don't other people want salaries? Young ladies of your age generally want a comfortable home. I don't, snapped Bella. I want to help mother. You can call again this day of the week, said the person, or if I hear anything in the meantime, I will write to you. No letter came from the person, and in exactly a week, Bella put on her neatest hat the one that had been seldomest caught in the rain, and trudged off to Hardbeck Street. 
It was a dull October afternoon, and there was a greyness in the air which might turn to fog before night. The Walworth Road shops gleamed brightly through that grey atmosphere, and though to a young lady reared in Mayfair or Belgravia such shop windows would have been unworthy of a glance, they were a snare and temptation for Bella. There were so many things that she longed for and would never be able to buy. Hardbeck Street is apt to be empty at this dead season of the year, a long, long street, an endless perspective of eminently respectable houses. The person's office was at the further end, and Bella looked down that long grey vista almost despairingly, more tired than usual with the trudge from Woolworth. As she looked, a carriage passed her, an old-fashioned yellow chariot, on sea springs, drawn by a pair of high grey horses, with the stateliest of coachmen driving them, a tall footman sitting by his side. This looks like the fairy godmother's coach, thought Bella. I shouldn't wonder if it began by being a pumpkin. It was a surprise when she reached the person's door to find the yellow chariot standing before it, and the tall footman waiting near the doorstep. She was almost afraid to go in and meet the owner of that splendid carriage. She had caught only a glimpse of its occupant as the chariot rolled by, a plumed bonnet, a patch of ermine. The person's smart page ushered her upstairs and knocked at the official door. Miss Ralston, he announced apologetically while Bella waited outside. Show her in, the person said quickly. And then Bella heard her murmuring something in a low voice to her client. Bella went in, fresh, blooming, a living image of youth and hope. And before she looked at the person, her gaze was riveted by the owner of the chariot. Never had she seen anyone as old as the old lady sitting by the person's fire. A little old figure, wrapped from chin to feet in an ermine mantle, a withered old face under a plumed bonnet, a face so wasted by age that it seemed only a pair of eyes and a peaked chin. The nose was peaked too, but between the sharply pointed chin and the great shining eyes, the small aquiline nose was hardly visible. This is Miss Ralston, Lady Duquesne. Claw-like fingers flashing with jewels lifted a double eyeglass to Lady Duquesne's shining black eyes. And through the glasses, Bella saw those unnaturally bright eyes magnified to a gigantic size and glaring at her awfully. Miss Torpinder has told me all about you, said the old voice that belonged to the eyes. Have you good health? Are you strong and active? Able to eat well, sleep well, walk well, able to enjoy all that there is good in life? I have never known what it is to be ill or idle, answered Bella. Then I think you will do well for me. Of course, in the event of references being perfectly satisfactory, put in the person. I don't want references. The young woman looks frank and innocent. 
I'll take her on trust. So like you, dear Lady Duquesne, murmured Miss Torpinter. I want a strong young woman whose health will give me no trouble. You have been so unfortunate in that respect, cooed the person, whose voice and manner were subdued to a melting sweetness by the old woman's presence. Yes, I've been rather unlucky, grunted Lady Duquesne. But I am sure Miss Ralston will not disappoint you, though certainly, after your unpleasant experience with Miss Tornston, who looked the picture of health, and Miss Blandy, who said she had never seen a doctor since she was vaccinated. Lies, no doubt, muttered Lady Duquesne, and then, turning to Bella, she asked curtly, You don't mind spending a winter in Italy, I suppose? In Italy? The very word was magical. Bella's fair young face flushed crimson. It has been the dream of my life to see Italy, she gasped. From Woolworth to Italy. How far, how impossible such a journey had seemed to that romantic dreamer. Well, your dream will be realized. Get yourself ready to leave Charing Cross by the train deluxe this day week at eleven. Be sure you are at the station a quarter before the hour. My people will look after you and your luggage. Lady Duquesne rose from her chair, assisted by her crutch stick, and Miss Torpinter escorted her to the door. And with regard to salary? questioned the person on the way. Salary? Oh, the same as usual. And if the young woman wants a quarter's pay in advance, you can write to me for a check, Lady Duquesne answered carelessly. Miss Torpinter went all the way downstairs with her client and waited to see her seated in the yellow chariot. When she came upstairs again, she was slightly out of breath, and she had resumed that superior manner which Bella had found so crushing. You may think yourself uncommonly lucky, Miss Ralston, she said. I have dozens of young ladies on my books whom I might have recommended for this situation. But I remember having told you to call this afternoon, and I thought I would give you a chance. Old Lady Duquesne is one of the best people on my books. She gives her companions a hundred a year and pays all travelling expenses. You will live in the lap of luxury. A hundred a year? How too lovely! Shall I have to dress very grandly? Does Lady Duquesne keep much company? At her age, no. She lives in seclusion. In her own apartments, her French maid, her footman, her medical attendant, her courier. Why did those other companions leave her? asked Bella. Their health broke down. Poor things. And so they had to leave? Yes, they had to leave. I suppose you would like a quarter's salary in advance? Oh, yes, please. I shall have things to buy. Very well. I will write for Lady Duquesne's cheque, and I will send you the balance. After deducting my commission for a year. To be sure, I had forgotten the commission. You don't suppose I keep this office for pleasure, 
Of course not, muttered Bella, remembering the five shillings entrance fee. But nobody could expect a hundred a year and a winter in Italy for five shillings. We hope you enjoyed listening to this sample chapter from Dracula's Daughters. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.